Hi, thank you for joining us. I'm Charlotte Wood, and I'm podcasting from the Bondec Montessori in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. Today, we're talking about the social side of the Montessori primary classroom, the classroom for children aged two and a half to six. So academics are one part of what children learn in a Montessori classroom. And that's true for any age, but we'll be specifically speaking about the primary community today. So one part is academics, but academics don't live alone. The other piece is the social development, the interpersonal and the internal growth that each child experiences during her time in a primary classroom. Montessori really is the education of the whole child. Academics cannot be taught separately from positive social development. When children are working in close proximity to one another and there's lots of movement and lots of cooperation and lots of different social interaction, you cannot be expected to just learn math or just learn how to build a material, or just learn your letters. Those don't live in a vacuum. Everything at this very young age, under six, is all greatly interconnected. And so we thought we'd parse into that a little bit deeper today. So Montessori is the education of the whole child, not just academics, not just their social needs, their needs within their family life, their needs within a greater community. So in the context of classroom life, problem solving, standing up for yourself, independence, meeting your own needs, meeting some needs of others, positive growth in areas of academia, areas of social development in all aspects of your life, physically growing larger every day. And so all of those areas of development are areas of the whole child, education of the whole child. So we thought we'd go into 10 different areas in which In the Montessori classroom, we tend to the empathetic nature of children. There's an innate human desire to be in relationship, and we can call this social education, how we help children to develop pro-social behaviors and to live and work in community. And so we thought we'd go into 10 different aspects of that today. The first one is the Montessori classroom is a community. It's a small family. Children spend years in the same classroom. Frequently in a primary classroom, a child would begin between two and a half and three and a half, and then they're going to grow in that classroom for two, three, or sometimes even four years, growing from the youngest member of the classroom to the oldest member of the classroom. So in many ways, when they first start out, they know very little. They know maybe 10% of the classroom and 10% of how to do things. And then when they leave, they might know 90 or 95% of the materials and most of the time know how to handle a situation. So when a child begins, they don't know most things and they grow within that role and within their capacities. For this reason, You are always a full member of the community, no matter how much you're able to do or how well you're able to do that. 
Membership of the community is not reliant on knowledge or on abilities. It is a given from your very first day, and the children are encouraged to usher one another along to bring them into the fold and to help them along. If you know something, it's your responsibility and your privilege to help one another along. Because these children grow up together, They start when they're so young, looking up to older children, and then they grow within the community with some of the same children and welcoming in new children. They look out for one another much the same way children in a family or close friends who grow up together do, looking out for one another's well-being, helping each other, and also knowing when somebody doesn't need help, when the best way to help someone is to leave them be. The second aspect is uniquely tied to that, that they look out for one another. They worry if someone is upset. They ask after one another if someone is absent. They know when a friend is going on vacation. If we're missing a member of our community, the children are the first ones to point it out, and they care if someone is missing. This is fostered, and we talk about who's going on vacation or where somebody might be. Oh, you know, they might be absent today because they're feeling poorly maybe when we see them again we can ask them how they're doing and they know when they're absent from school their friends are wondering about them their friends are worried this is positive pro-social behavior because even when you're not there you know you're cared about third observation is supported as a learning opportunity We've talked about observation on the blog and on podcasts about how observation for a very young child is as much a method of learning as doing something yourself. It's how children learn to eat and to walk and to talk and all of those very, very basic skills when they were infants. Nobody taught them how to do that. They didn't read a textbook. They observed. And so that continues into the classroom and a natural part of the multi-age environment, a child is able to observe something that an older child is doing. And we know that both children benefit. It kind of puts the observed child on their best behavior because they're doing a performance. And I know I want to do this perfectly because somebody is watching me. And the younger child also learns because, oh, I just really want to be able to do what Sam does. He's so big. And if I watch him pay attention, maybe I'll know how to do it too. Children are taking all of it in. It might be happening across the room, but They're always observing and taking that in, and that is positively beneficial for both the observant child and the observed. Both are learning during that observation moment. The fourth aspect is that children are encouraged to ask for and offer help. We give lessons, they're called grace and courtesy lessons. It's kind of how to or what to do when. So for instance, what to do when you have a big spill and you need some assistance. What to do when you need some help with your material. And how to ask for help. How to know who could help you. And so children are often encouraged Can you help me with my zipper? Oh, you know, Sarah is an expert at zippers. Have you asked Sarah? Or can you help me tie my shoe? Oh, let's think about who is the expert at tying shoes. And so we can be the best at something in a Montessori classroom. We can be an expert at something, an expert at the bow frame, or an expert at getting 
the pink tower perfectly back on the shelf. And those are just good people to ask for help when you need assistance with a skill that somebody in the classroom is particularly adept with. The other good part is you don't need to be the oldest in order to be an expert or be able to help. Children of all ages, have, have you asked one of our young friends to help you clean this spill? Older children are just as frequent to drop a bucket as a younger child and they might need help just as much as a brand new child. And if you know how to help, you are always welcome to offer help. That's not something reserved for somebody of a certain age. And when you ask for help, you are identifying that this skill or this material is beyond your current capacities. You're identifying that, which is an important skill even for us as adults to have. Identifying this is beyond my current capacities who might be able to help me. We strongly encourage the children to rely on one another before turning to adults for help, partially because they're always available to one another. They love to help one another. And if you are asked for help or if you can identify, I can help in this situation, the sense of pride that fills a child is irreplaceable by an adult intervening. And so we really want the children to rely on one another and to have that self-assuredness that comes when they're able to help out a friend. A fifth aspect is that children are given tools for problem solving. In the Montessori classroom, an adult does not decide who's going to eat snack or paint next or now it's your turn to use the toilet and we're going to ask so-and-so to come be next. It's just a question of, is it available? If it's on the shelf and you've had a presentation, it's available for you to use. This helps children avoid feelings of frustration or feelings of unfairness since the facts of a situation are clear. An adult is not deciding whether or not I get to paint on this certain day. Certain number of pieces of paper have been left out, and when those pieces of paper are gone, they're gone. No choice was being made. There's no risk of feelings of favoritism, or I never get to have snack, which is rarely, if ever, true. It's just, is it available? And if not, we carry on. If a child is feeling that way, or we notice, yeah, they often don't seem to luck out when it comes to snack or painting or sitting in the library or any one of those favorite materials. We can help make those things happen of, you know, I see you're putting your work away. Maybe you'd like to have snack, but that's very different than an adult deciding who gets to do something and when. When you're done coloring with the red crayon or when it's somebody else's turn to sit in the library, I think you've had enough time with that material. You need to share. Genuine sharing comes from a place of comfort and security. When you are allowed to work with or play with or be in a space to your heart's content, you walk away from that experience with no strings attached and another child gets to come in and have that experience or use that material or play with that without an adult deciding, oh, it's your turn, you've had five minutes, I'm going to put a timer on, or any other arbitrary outside metric. This helps children be generous, feel emotionally secure, and it leads to genuine sharing. 
Children are given tools for self-regulation. It's easy to be kind and compassionate to others when you're feeling safe and secure and like you have control of your emotion. Personally, I know I'm feeling very altruistic toward others when my own needs are met, when I'm not hungry and tired, when I'm not feeling frustrated. And so we want to give those skills to children in the same capacity. There is no time out. If you were willing to be cooperative enough to sit still and be quiet, then we wouldn't be in this situation. There are thinking chairs where children can go independently if they don't know what work they want to work on, if they're feeling a bit out of sorts. Frequently, when a child gets up on the wrong side of the bed or is having one of those Alexander moments, a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad moment, often what they need is togetherness, to feel heard. That sense that we talked about in number two about children look out for one another. They need to be reminded and feel like they're part of the group rather than any behavior being enough to remove them from this sense of community. The sense of community is so important to who we are as humans. The idea of a timeout, especially for a child this small who's still having trouble regulating their emotions, if they could regulate their emotions, then we wouldn't be here in this position. So emotions are a natural part of everyday life. We have all of them. And so helping a child to identify that you look really frustrated that you thought you were going to go eat snack and it's not available. I can see that that's frustrating for you. Can you tell me how you're feeling and why you might be feeling that way? I get frustrated too when things don't line up the way I'm expecting them to in my mind. It's not available now, but it'll be available later in the day. Perhaps you'd like to practice the stamp game. I'd be happy to write you an equation for the stamp game. Or perhaps you'd like to go tidy that shelf. Sometimes when I'm feeling out of sorts, it makes me feel good to put something in order. So we identify those emotions, help them to verbalize them, and give them a different healthy outlet for it. The seventh aspect is that children return the work to the shelf ready for the next person to use. And this seems kind of punitive when we're working with children as young as two and a half, but children are very capable of this. Children are capable of being as tidy, as orderly, as organized as we give them capacity to be. So if something is accessible, they're going to be able to do it successfully. If things aren't too cluttered and are tidy on the shelf when they walk in, if there's a limit to the scope of materials available on the shelf, if things are beautiful and organized, there's a higher likelihood that when they return them to the shelf, they'll be able to do that. And if they're not, then it's our ability and responsibility as adults to step in and, can I show you how we return it to the shelf? Partially supporting a child's own internal sense of order. But part of it is care for others. How do you feel when you walk to the shelf and you want to take off a work and it's messy and all the water is out of the pitcher and it's all over the tray and not where it belongs? It's not caring for somebody else when we return something not ready for the next child to do their best work and their best learning. And so we make sure that when we return a pencil to the shelf, it's 
sharpened and ready for a next person to use. Or when we return the stamp game or any material back to the shelf, all the little tiles or beads or whatever this material contains are all right where they belong so that it's tidy and beautiful and inviting for the next child. This is care for others. This is empathy. The eighth aspect is care of the environment, which is essentially tidying, taking care of your own space. It's a fundamental part of the curriculum. It's in the area of the classroom we call practical life. And children take great pride in making things nice for one another, of being the sweeper after lunch, or scrubbing all the tables, or noticing that somebody has made a misstep and colored on the table instead of on their paper. I know how to fix that. It doesn't matter if you're the one who did it. I know how to fix this, and I'm not making it nice only for myself. I'm making it nice for everybody. That There's an incredible sense of pride when children feel like they get to make a contribution and that they're giving back to the group in the way that they feel that the group has given to them. The penultimate aspect, number nine, is everyone is encouraged to help as best they are able. If there's a spill or a material out of place, the question is not, whose is this? I didn't do it. I didn't do it. But instead, I know how to fix that. It's, you know, I noticed that the color tablets, uh, somebody dropped the box. Would anybody be willing to fix that? Or I noticed that the rug basket has gotten a lot of use today and could use some attention. Who's an expert at rolling rugs? Who would be willing to make this beautiful before we leave for the day? And children are happy to volunteer. I know how to fix that is a common phrase that emerges in the Montessori classroom. And there's great joy in contributing to the well-being of the group. It doesn't matter who made the mess. The point is we are all responsible for one another and for this shared space. Finally, positive manners and social interactions are modeled in practice. Anything that we want a child to be able to do, I as the adult in the classroom must always do it myself. If I want children to behave with grace and decorum and respect to one another, I act in the same way. If I want a child to volunteer to clean up a spill that they didn't make, I need to overtly notice that, and sometimes it helps to name that. Oh, I noticed that there's some water on the floor. Whoever made this mess must not have noticed. Good thing I know where the spill cloths are. So we overtly model these things, sometimes naming our actions, sometimes dictating what we're doing to make it more clear for a child of what those behaviors are that we're acting out that we might want them to emulate. And we do practice them. These are those events we call grace and courtesy lessons. What to do when it looks like someone needs a tissue or what to do when you're feeling frustrated, or how to move about the classroom in a graceful way, or how to walk around the rug. These are all basically the rules of the classroom. They're how we live our life together. They're how we live in community. They're how we make this a pleasant place to be together. And we can invent a grace and courtesy lesson for any skill that we'd like the children to have, for anything that we notice seems to be an area where the children aren't adept yet. How to ask a friend to use an inside voice.
how to identify that you're being too loud with your work or that your scrubbing is disturbing others, how to ask somebody if they need help tidying their spill. All of these skills and any number of interactions that we might identify throughout the day, we turn them into grace and courtesy lessons so that children can be successful together independently and having pro-social behaviors. So this has been a long one. We hope it's been worthwhile. And thanks for listening. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, and Instagram at Bondec. And email us with comments, questions, and suggestions at hello at bondec.org. Until next time.